Let's turn in our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 6. As we've been looking at chapters 4, 5, and 6, we have been witnessing the different tactics of the enemy to cause the work of God to cease there in Jerusalem as they have been endeavoring to rebuild and restore the walls around Jerusalem. As God's work has been moving forward, we've seen repeated waves of enemy opposition in chapters 4 and 5 coming in different forms. We'll see it continue now as we go forward into chapter 6. In chapter 4, it was an effort, it seems, to cause the people of God to become discouraged, to question what they were doing. They dealt with ridicule and mockery, even threat and fears that were coming against them. As we came to chapter 5, we saw then uh, the attack sort of shift inwardly. So chapter 4, it was sort of attack from without, from those in the world bringing opposition from without. Chapter 5, the issue was problems within, relational issues actually among God's people that were threatening God's work, just the selfishness of people's human nature and problematic situations because of mistreatment among God's people. And again, that was causing a threat to God's work, and Nehemiah had to address that. And now as we come to chapter 6, we see another wave of enemy attacks to try and stop and hinder God's work. And again, this time we'll see the target is different once again. This time the target is trying to actually to take out the leader among God's people, the one who was directing God's work, the one who was providing oversight and leadership, which was Nehemiah himself, who was the anointed man of God at this time, directing his people to do God's work. And that's really where the focus seems to be this time. And of course, as we look at these things, chapters 4, 5, and 6, as we said, they're great reflections to us of how spiritual warfare happens in the lives of Christians, how spiritual attack happens against God's church and the way the enemy seeks to oppose and hinder the work of God spiritually in forms of ministry that would happen through God's people and the different works we would seek to do on behalf of his kingdom. So as we come to chapter 6 now, again, we find another wave, and again, as we'll see, this time it's that direct effort that if you could take out the leader— then that would sort of cause problematic things and cause the work to cease. And they're getting rather close to completing the work now. And this is sort of a last effort to try and stop things and make situations deteriorate rather than progress. It tells us in chapter 6, verse 1, Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and these were repeated enemies as we've seen, these individuals, it says, and the rest of our enemies, there were many enemies, and there always, it seems, are many different types of enemies that come against God's people. There are many different enemies that threaten God's work. We've seen some of them, and we'll see more of those things again. It says, when they heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not hung the doors and the gates. So where we're at at this point in time is very close to the completion of the wall. The construction process is almost complete. In fact, as we get to chapter 6, verse 15, we're going to see that the wall is actually declared as finished in the short time frame that it took them. Rather quick, in less than two months, they were able to complete this. But that's what verse 1 is indicating to us here, uh, that the wall was now somewhat rebuilt, Mainly, all that was left was sort of still hanging the gates at this time. And it says that it was during this time that Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me harm, so I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease? while I leave it to go down to you. So we notice sort of the first tactic, if you would, we take notice of in the chapter here, of enemy opposition. And again, this time it's targeted specifically towards the leader among God's people. The first tactic here, we might say somewhat, is an effort to distract. 
to pull away the attention of the leader into some form of compromise, to become entangled in something else. Again, Sanballat and uh, Geshem and Tobiah, these enemies repeatedly, they realized that they weren't succeeding in other efforts. So now they kind of try and encourage Nehemiah to kind of come together with them in some sort of a compromise. It seems they're inviting him to some type of a meeting that they could gather together and maybe discuss things what their differences were, how maybe they could come alongside and help them finish up this project since it seems they're so determined to do it. And this invitation comes, it says, they sent to me saying, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Oh No. Now, I love the way the English reads there. Whenever you are invited to do something that includes Oh No, Uh, That's probably a pretty good indication in your conscience there, something you shouldn't be participating in. So uh, nonetheless, this was the the literal name of the particular location where they wanted to meet with him. Uh, What's interesting is that location, uh, the plain of Ono, they're, they're referencing, that's about 25 or so miles northwest of Jerusalem. So this was at least a good day's journey that Nehemiah would have to take if he were to go and meet with them uh, as they're inviting him to. So this would pull him away from the work for a significant amount of time. It wasn't as if they were trying to come to him. It wasn't as if they were offering some convenient spot. He would have to make a day's journey to the location, meet with them, a day's journey back. So it would be a pretty significant commitment he would have to make to disengage from what he was doing, providing leadership to the people, keeping them inspired and encouraged to stay at God's work and stay on track with what God's will and purpose was for them. And he would have to kind of disconnect from that and to go and to to participate in this meeting. And in some ways, it would bring, you might say, a fair amount of distraction. It would pull him away from what he was to be committed doing, the thing that his focus was supposed to be on. And it seems that that may be part of what triggered Nehemiah to recognize that something didn't seem right about this. Though it may have been couched in friendly terms and seemed like maybe they were trying to make relational amends or something, Nehemiah seemed to recognize that they thought to do him harm, that they didn't have good intentions in mind because of the fact that they were asking him to pull so far away to go meet him. And no doubt he was understanding this is probably an assassination attempt even, that if he were to be that far away from the rest of the community of God's people, traveling 25 miles away over to the area there uh, where the villages were in the plain of Ono, that uh, this was kind of more of their territory and it would make him vulnerable and at risk. And this very likely was an effort to pull him away where he didn't have protection, accountability, and those who could watch out for him and he would put himself at risk if he was in this compromised situation and be more vulnerable to them actually assassinating him and putting an end to him altogether as the leader. So, uh, again, we need to keep in mind this is often a way that the enemy of our soul will seek to work to uh, stop and hinder the work of God in our lives spiritually, a way he'll seek to stop and hinder the work of God from happening through us in ministry is that he seeks to pull us aside from what we're doing to get us distracted to doing other things. Maybe it's in some form of compromise. Maybe it's an invitation to go participate in something else. And we're kind of lured away. And the enemy does it in such a way that it it kind of pulls us away from putting our effort and energy in the things that we should be and the thing that we should be on task with doing whether it's just walking close with the Lord and staying faithful and connected to the things of God, being with church family, participating in worship, reading God's word, praying, walking in the spirit. And these invitations come into our lives that kind of are a way to just pull us off track somehow, to get us engaged in something else uh, that's pulling us aside from what would really be best for us. And it's just an effort of the enemy to kind of do us harm. 
uh, again, and it comes in, in very subtle and deceptive ways. You know, and somebody's not going to come to you and say, hey, I was wondering if you would like to uh, backslide this weekend. No, it doesn't come in that way. It, it comes in the way where you're just invited to do something. Hey, let's get together. Maybe it's some old friends that you used to party with and do some ungodly activity with, and all of a sudden they reach out to you. Hey, why don't you come and hang out with us and do this or that? And not that necessarily in and of itself it's wrong to have interaction with the unsaved or people from our past that we love and we want to see come to Christ, but if they're going to pull us off into a situation that's going to put us at risk and make us vulnerable to potential threat to our spiritual life, we need to realize that sometimes the enemy is just baiting us because just as they thought to do Nehemiah harm, the enemy wants to do us harm. Again, remember the Bible tells us, Peter writing in the New Testament says that we need to be sober and vigilant, the idea is sober, is clear-minded, that we have sober judgment, we're thinking clearly, we're seeing clearly, being vigilant, paying attention. And he says the reason is because our adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. He's looking to just pull us off a side into a spot where we're more vulnerable, where we're away from fellowship and accountability and those safe boundaries of being maybe in a place where our spiritual walk is safe, we're with God's people in a safe environment, we're just pulling us aside to where we're more kind of isolated and we're putting ourselves in a more vulnerable condition where it's easier for us to experience spiritual attack and to be defeated in our spiritual lives and the enemy can cause great harm to us in those situations. So we have to be careful. It seems Nehemiah might have discerned this because he's thinking, why do they want me to go all the way over to there to meet during that time? But rather than directly accuse them, uh, I know that you people have harm. Nehemiah doesn't seem to do that. Instead, he uses really sound wisdom, and he actually just sends a message back to their invitation, almost as if he's trying to uh, you know, flush out uh, if they do have ill intent in what they're doing without having to directly accuse them for it. He simply says to them, verse Three, I sent messengers back to their invitation saying, I am doing a great work. The idea is I'm engaged in an important project. Uh, this is important work that I'm doing. I'm doing the work of God. I'm serving a, a very high purpose in what I'm doing, and I recognize that to God this is a great work because it's God's work. And any work we do for God is a great work. Uh, and the more that we recognize that, the better off we are, that we never diminish any work that we do for God. They were building a wall. It was something physical. It was construction. But yet it was a part of God's plans. It was a part of God's purposes. And that wall served to help facilitate the temple worship life and keeping God's people safe and protected. It helped support God's work of the worship system there in Jerusalem and help facilitate spiritual health among the people. So uh, Nehemiah says, this is a great work, not because there was something great about him or those doing it, but it was because it was God's work. Uh, and the more that we recognize that God's work is really a great, a valuable, and an important thing when we do it, uh, that is a great asset to us to stay on track with doing what we're doing because we realize the level of importance it is. Uh, when we have an understanding God's work is important, it's valuable, it has eternal impact, it has spiritual importance, and that our labor in the Lord is not in vain, that helps us to stay very determined and very dedicated into that work in which God has us doing for him, whether it's what Nehemiah was doing or whatever thing God may allow us to do as his servants today in the work that we do for his kingdom's sake. He says, look, I, I'm engaged. I'm occupied, he says, in an important work, a great work for God. He says, I, I, I can't come down. I can't cease from doing what I'm doing and become distracted and come over there to meet with you because what I'm doing has a greater level of importance. So he declines their offer because his priority is upon doing God's work rather than it is engaging in other things. And sometimes to stay focused on God's work, we have to be able to make those judgments. What is worthy to pull us away from our first priority of doing God's work? You know, sometimes we can get pulled away too easily and we don't stay focused. And he says, look, I, I can't do that. Why, he says, should the work cease, verse 3, while I leave it and go down to you? So he says, if I pull away and come over and meet you, 
the oversight that the people need, my leadership that I provide to them that helps them stay on track spiritually and to be productive in the construction work that they're doing. Uh, my leadership, if it's pulled away from the people, is going to have a detrimental effect in their lives. It may cause God's work, he says, to cease. Again, uh, the, the Bible tells us if you strike the shepherd, then the sheep will be scattered. Uh, and you know anybody understands this. Even in military conflict, they understand if you take out uh, leaders, military leaders, you can put in disarray the rest of the army. If, if you attack and eliminate leaders uh, and their influence isn't there and their presence and their ability to provide direction and oversight and help is removed from the people, you can have really great impact. So that's why leaders are targeted, and we always need to recognize that. And that's why we should pray for our leaders, why we should pray for our national leaders. The Bible tells us that we should pray for kings and for those in authority that we might lead peaceable and quiet lives in all godliness and reverence. Again, we're commanded to pray for our governmental leaders. And Nehemiah was a governor. And he was trying to reconstruct and help get things back on track in the city of Jerusalem when it was in disrepair and shambles. And it was a critical time, and Nehemiah was doing an important work, and his leadership was essential. And so the Bible tells us we, sh we should pray for our governmental authorities and leaders. We should pray for spiritual leaders in the same way that are doing God's work among God's people, helping lead ministries and guide churches. This is an important work as well, and we need to realize these are the type of individuals, again, that the enemy is going to target. Uh, the enemy is strategic. The devil is very wise in how he conducts his warfare, and so Nehemiah recognizes this, and all leaders need to exercise this discernment. If you're going to provide leadership, you need to be someone who is able to stay focused. When other people get unfocused, you don't have the liberty to do that. You have got to remain a person who's determined, who stays on task. You have to be someone who can avoid distraction, being pulled away uh, by things. And there will always be things that are wanting to pull us away, some of them just normal things that happen. And other times, it's just efforts of uh, the enemy, if you would, trying to get us off into compromise from what we should really be doing or to distract us from putting our efforts and energies upon what we're really supposed to be occupying our time with. So Nehemiah recognizes that he declines their offer, and it tells us, verse 4, but they sent me this message four times. So they were rather persistent. He sent back this message four times. They kept sending this invitation to come meet there in the plain of, oh, no, and it says, I answer them in the same manner each and every time. So notice, Nehemiah was a man who had resolve. He was someone who, when he was making a decision, his yes was a yes, and his no was a no. And Jesus tells us that we should answer in that way, that we should make decisions, and that we should have some degree of resolve when we make our decision uh, and, and not allow ourselves to be swayed when we do make our decision, whether it's by pressure or persistence, continual asking. And again, they kept asking four times. They kept, again, keep in mind, this is long distances. They're sending messengers a day's journey to Nehemiah. They're asking this. He sends the men back a day journey. Then the messengers are sent back again another point. So there's a lot of effort in this, very persistent, trying to pull him off track. And again, maybe just wondering if they kept being persistent enough that if they would just wear him down or he would become tempted or maybe he would think, well, maybe I am thinking about this wrong. And again, this is a way often that the enemy will work to try and ensnare the lives of God's people is he'll be persistent. That invitation from the person who we used to be maybe in an old romantic relationship with that was an unhealthy thing we're involved in and we broke off and we got out of that and then all of a sudden they don't just call once or text you once. They're, they're repeatedly reaching out, reaching out, reaching out and the temptation is continual and it's constant. 
And if the first time doesn't work, and again, the enemy's not dumb because sometimes he's aware that maybe somebody may say no once, but after the second or third time, they may just kind of not have the fortitude to resist and they give in. And their resolve doesn't hold up and they end up just kind of caving into the pressure or the persistence. And the enemy's wise. He'll wait us out. He'll try and wear us down. Sometimes there may be those invitations, again, to pull us off track to do something. And again, sometimes even just a situation where somebody may just be asking us, hey, come do this, or you should do that. And we realize, you know, just if I do that, it's going to pull me away from giving my full attention to what I really know God wants me to be giving my primary attention and devotion to. And sometimes we have to have that ability to exercise some determination. And, and to just sort of be resolute and to recognize my answer has been given and, and I'm not going to change my answer. This is where I should keep my focus. And I don't want to be pulled away from what God wants me to do because our first allegiance is to the Lord and doing what he wants us to do rather than what other people are suggesting or asking us to do and maybe being very persistent about. And again, keep in mind, Nehemiah, as he keeps sending back the same answer, no doubt he's also reaffirming in his own heart, being more convinced that they indeed want to do him harm. Because if they genuinely had a good intention, they could have very easily just made the journey themselves. They could have said, okay, hey, after the first time they heard that, you know what? Yeah, you are doing a very important work. You're a busy man with that. And we understand as a leader, you can't disconnect and travel over here days on end to meet with us. So you know what? Since you don't want the work to cease and your leadership is necessary there with the people, we'll come to you. Uh, and again, he sort of proved out the ill intention that was in their hearts by holding his ground. And he was able to see, okay, they're just looking to do me harm because they're not making any effort on their end to make concessions. It's obvious they're just trying to pull me away, and they're trying to pull me away from safety and accountability because they want to assassinate me when they get me out there where I'm away from everything and I'm more vulnerable. So again, another reason sometimes why it's good to be careful in the same way, you know, that sometimes you got to have wisdom of somebody. Maybe they're just that like, like a constant push in a, in a sales pitch and somebody keeps trying to convince you and trying to convince you and trying to convince you. And sometimes, you know, the, the more they make an effort to try and convince you to make the purchase or buy something, you almost question it more and more because you realize, why are you being so persistent? Sometimes when somebody's being persistent, trying to pressure you, those are the times where you realize you can kind of see maybe if there's a, an underlying motive or an agenda or something dangerous that it's a trap. And by waiting it out and staying uh, kind of persistent yourself and keeping your decision and not giving in, you come to recognize that. So Nehemiah answered them four times. And again, notice verse 5 now, we see that he was correct because after four times that they are declined, they show their true colors that they only want to harm him, and they just try and take a different approach now because the assassination attempt by distracting him into compromise, he didn't fall for that. They weren't able to put an end to his life. So verse 5 says, Then Sambalit sent his servant to me as before the fifth time. So now they come back a fifth time, this time with an open letter in his hand. Now that was very different because typically letters were on papyrus, they were rolled up, they were tied up, and then they were usually sealed shut so that no one could read the contents except the one who uh, the letter was to. This time there's an open letter, and the idea of an open letter is so that it could be read by all, it would be public knowledge. So he comes back with an open letter, and now notice the next tactic is slander, an accusation towards the leader. It says, and it was written... In the letter, verse 6, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem says, that you and the Jews plan to rebel. That's why you're doing this. This is just a rebellion you're starting there. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall, that you may be their king. And you've also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king, so come, therefore, and let us consult together. So uh, their fifth endeavor to try and intimidate Nehemiah, to try and convince him to feel pressured and come meet with him, is, is now they start heaping slander and accusations towards his character to try and discredit him, 
to falsely accuse him of things that were just rumors and weren't even true. It says there in verse 6, it's reported according to these rumors, according to these rumors that you Jews are just planning to rebel. That's what this rebuilding project is. It's just the, the stages that you're working through to prepare for a great rebellion. That's why you're rebuilding the wall. And Nehemiah, you're just looking to set yourself up as a new king in that land. You're looking to establish yourself and to take control of the territory of Jerusalem, even sending out prophets to endorse you and to just try and put you in a position uh, that you're trying to claim for yourself over that territory. And he says, look, we're going to we're going to tell on you. We're going to report this back to the genuine king, the, the one who was ruling the empire at that time. And again, just trying to use these slanderous accusations, these rumors and false reports to try and make him nervous and make him do something that he should not. And again, how very interesting. This also is something, take notice, that wasn't just being done privately, because what did we see in verse 5? These things, these accusations and slanders and rumors, which were not true, they weren't just privately delivered to Nehemiah, but they were made public. It says there was an open letter. The idea is so that anyone could read it. Uh, today, the idea may be, be you know, that, that it, was, it was posted on social media uh, or, or it was published uh, on the news somehow. Uh, the idea, again, is, is these weren't just personal accusations or slanderous comments made one person to another, these were things made publicly, made openly, and they were all untrue things. They were completely unfactual. They were false accusations and twisting of things that were not going on, but yet they were trying to question his motives, saying that he said things that he didn't say. You know, we call this today in our you know, current uh, society, we hear a whole lot now about fake news. And this is kind of what this is. This was fake news, nothing new under the sun. They were saying that Nehemiah and the Jews had these other underlying agendas. And again, keep in mind, this is another way that our adversary, spiritually, the devil, works to oppose God's people, and to come against the work of God's Spirit through slander, through accusations. The Bible tells us that he is referred to, the devil, as the accuser of the brethren. Uh, even the very word diabolos, where we get the word devil, uh, speaks of someone who is, is double-tongued, like a snake, like a serpent, uh, talking out of both sides of their mouth. Again, this is, this is a, a common tactic of the devil, is the devil fiercely uses the tongue, words, whether it's words of condemnation, words of criticism, and even at times words of accusation, slander, gossip, making false statements about people, making false accusations against leaders, against spiritual leaders, trying to discredit them, to cause confusion and get people to question their integrity or their leadership. And this is a tactic that the devil will often use to try and destroy God's people, to hinder the work of his spirit in our lives personally. At times, it's the work that he will employ to try and harm and stop God's work in some form of ministry. Again, I look at the wonderful thing that's happening right now presently with Samaritan's Purse doing a great work there, setting up their field hospital in Central Park in New York City, and again, just freely going in, blessing people, assisting and helping in this time of the pandemic, treating anyone with love and compassion that needs care and assistance, and doing it all in just a gracious, free, helpful way. And yet then you have people who are there protesting, uh, those who are protesting because Samaritan's Purse and the Billy Graham organization also stand for traditional marriage values. Uh, so you have people there saying that basically they are there in Central Park spreading hate. And you have people protesting, literally saying, uh, you know, uh, spread love and offer help, not hate. And these kind of accusations, and again, just so tragic. I mean, they're, they're there not promoting anything other than providing free assistance 
Uh, and again, it, it's just so sad and tragic to see you know, wonderful works of God, the Lord's people serving, pouring out their hearts and assisting, and yet being accused and slandered, hurtful things being said against them, just so tragic. But yet often this is the way the enemy works and his attacks. And so here Nehemiah is now being slandered. But I look at verse 8. What a great wise response. It says, Then I sent to him... As Nehemiah is being attacked, I sent to him saying, no such things as you say are being done. That's Nehemiah's way of saying that's fake news. <laughs> no such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. He says, the things that you are saying about me are completely inaccurate. The things that you are accusing us of doing they are not being done. And he says, you're just creating these things in your own mind. You, you, you got great creativity, he says. I'll give you that. You're coming up with these ideas in your own heart and mind that are completely inaccurate. You're accusing us of things that have no factual basis. You are twisting things and reading between the lines and, and, and misinterpreting what we're doing as if we're actually trying to do something completely different than what we genuinely are. And he, he just says to them, look, I, I, I'm not going to get into this. I'm not going to dialogue with you. And he doesn't even begin to try and defend himself. Nehemiah doesn't, which, again, I think is another mark of, of great leadership. He just says, look, I, I, I'm not going to dispute that and get into a debate with you. He just says the bottom line is this. None of the things that you're saying are being done are being done. You're just creating those things in your own mind. You're just inventing those ideas in your own head. And Nehemiah just leaves it with that. It's not true. I'm going to go back to what I'm doing now, in a sense, Nehemiah does. You know, there's great wisdom at times of finding that balance of being honest, but not overly getting engaged, putting on the gloves, feeling like you've got to become defensive and you know, protect and defend yourself. Sometimes that can just be another way that we get distracted and pulled off track and then we start to behave and again, maybe we get angry and then we start just engaging and behaving in a way that then we do create reasons for guilt in our life because of our own misbehavior. You know, a wise leader recognizes, uh, you know, you need to do what your responsibility is to protect and to upkeep your own character and then you just let God take care of your reputation. That's our responsibility. Our responsibility is to maintain our character. And if we maintain our character, we can let God defend us and take care of our reputation. And Nehemiah wisely does that. And sometimes you may need to wisely do that if the enemy tries to come against you in different ways with slander or accusation. He says, verse 9, for they were trying to make us afraid. They were just trying to intimidate us, to bully us to get us to shut down and to stop what we're doing, saying that their hands will become weakened in the work and it will not be done. So Nehemiah says they, they were just trying to threaten us, trying to get us to be fearful and to just cave in and, and give up because of their pressure or their false accusations and that the slander would just so discourage us we would want to quit. And he says this is what they were doing. We recognized it. And notice again, what does Nehemiah do? Look at the end of verse 9. Now, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. Again, we continue to see how much Nehemiah was a man of prayer. God, they are trying to weaken us. God, they are attacking me as I'm trying to lead your people in this. And he says, God, strengthen me. Infuse me with your power, Lord, strengthen my hands so I can stay on task, so I can keep at the work, so that I don't get intimidated or I don't get pulled away and distracted. God, strengthen me to keep going until I finish. Help me to stay on task. And again, great wisdom there. Much more value in talking to God when you've been slandered and falsely accused than it is engaging with your slanderers and debating with people who are saying untrue or harmful and wrong things about you. He says, God, they're trying to weaken us in the work. Please just strengthen us to carry on. Help us not to let this affect us. In verse 10, afterward, I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delaiah, the son of Methabel, who was a secret informer. And he said to me, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. 
and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come and kill you. And I said, should such a man as I flee? And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceive, verse 12, that God had not sent him at all, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. So notice, here comes another tactic of the enemy here, kind of a, a third tactic, if you would, against the leader, Nehemiah. And this tactic is, again, trying to use fear to stumble him into sin, to try and do something to make him uneasy or concerned in such a way whereby he would act in self-defense or self-preservation and he actually would act in a way that was we're going to see contrary even to the word of God because he's trying to use his own logic instead or he's resorting to his feelings or the things that are being said and set before him notice it tells us there that they actually hired Sanballat and Tobiah this prophecy uh, or this prophet who would speak what was supposed to be a word of prophecy and and it happens we see there in chapter uh, 6 verse 10 where this man comes to Nehemiah and says to him look let's meet together but we should meet in the house of God because I'm concerned about you there are people who are coming to kill you Nehemiah you figured out that that's what they've been trying to do you can tell they're trying to kill you. You, you. you were able to avoid going to the plain of Ono. You survived the slander and the accusations, and that didn't destroy you. But I'm telling you, they're going to come to you like vigilantes in the night, and they're going to put you to death. And the safest place for you to be is to come and to hide in God's house. So he says, come on, he says, verse 10, let's close the doors of the temple. Come inside. They're coming to kill you, and, and, and we need to keep you safe. And he was trying to appear as if he cared about Nehemiah. He was trying to give the indication that he actually was someone who was concerned about Nehemiah's welfare. The reality was, is this guy was just a hired tool of the enemy. He was a false prophet, and he actually was just trying to, again, set up Nehemiah to do what would be his downfall, to disobey God, to do something that was sinful and something that was wrong. And and let me just say, in light of that, be very careful. Because sometimes the enemy will send people into your life that give the indication that they care about you so much, and they'll use spiritual speech and maybe words that sound like they love and care about you so much. Maybe it's a you know very flattering tongue, and Nehemiah, you're so important, and you're a leader, and, 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 and they'll say things in such a way where you would get the impression they care a lot about you, and the reality is they're actually just a, a subtle tool of the enemy in some way. And sometimes that can be the case. You know, there's a book that was written years ago called Well-Intended Dragons. And it was written, actually, uh, to basically kind of encourage uh, church leaders to be careful of people who seem very well-intended, sweet and spiritual and flattering, and they seem so like they care so much about, you know, the pastor or the church or this or that, when the reality is... Uh, there's an underlying thing in their heart that is unhealthy. Uh, they seem so well-intended, but they're sort of a dragon uh, and, and sort of a you know wolf in sheep's clothing to some degree. Uh, and this can happen. Understand, this is how many predators harm people, whether it's a predator taking advantage of a, of a woman or a predator taking advantage of children. A lot of times this is kind of how that dynamic unfolds. We understand it. Well, look, the same thing can happen among God's people. It can happen within the church. How do you think many, you know, uh, wolves, if you would, and false prophets come in and pull away people from God's flock and take advantage of people in these weird and bizarre cults that ruin people's lives or rip people off of money? Well, you know, they don't come at people in a way where they're disclosing all their true intentions. They act very spiritual speaking the words of God, they're the prophet of God, they have a word from the Lord, and it's all couched and kind of clothed in those things to disarm people, to make them feel very comfortable, and then they just concede and and get themselves into great harm. 
because they're taken advantage of. And, and here, this is kind of the indication. Look, Nehemiah, let's go and hide in the temple and stay safe. Well, understand what Nehemiah recognizes is, wait a minute, how can that be from God? Because that violates the written word of God. Again, Numbers chapter 3, as well as Numbers chapter 18, verse 7, specifically, if you're looking for a verse, said that no one but the appointed priests and Levites were allowed to be within the temple precincts. And if anyone else entered, that they would experience the judgment of death. You remember our study through the uh, book of Kings? I remember, I think it was Uzziah. Forgive me if I'm uh, misplacing the actual name there. Uh, at one occasion, sort of presumptively, went into the temple of God in sort of a, a prideful, presumptive way and was struck with leprosy and had to be yanked out of there before he was put to death for his violation. Only the spiritual leaders who were anointed to do such inside the temple were permitted by God to go in there. Anyone else, it was the fear of death and the threat of God's judgment of death to do such. And Nehemiah, understanding this written word of God, this principle, said, wait a minute, how can that word, that prophecy be from God? Because it violates the scripture. And God won't speak a prophetic word in violation to the written word of God. God is not schizophrenic. God is not a hypocrite. What God says, God upholds. And any prophetic word, any spiritual word, is going to be in alignment with the written word of God in principle, in truth. If it violates it, that's a clear indication that's a false prophecy or it is something not of God and not of God's spirit. So Nehemiah recognizes this because he knows the word of God. So valuable and important to know the word of God. You want to keep yourself safe? from persuasive people who can really be very, you know, kind of uh, persuasive and, and we care about you so much and the things of the Lord and I have a word from the Lord for you because I care about you. You want to protect yourself from that? You want to have discernment and be able to differentiate so that you're not misguided and caught off guard and ensnared? You know the word of God. That is your safety. Know the written scripture you'll be able to discern what is of God's spirit and what's not. So Nehemiah says, wait a minute, that doesn't line up. So that's why verse 11, he says, should such a man as I flee? First of all, you know, why would God call me to do this and then tell me to run away? God anointed me and called me to do this work. Why would he let me be killed before it's over? God's going to protect me. This is God's called me to do this. And he kind of trusts, you know, God's not going to be done with me before he finishes the work that he said he wanted me to do for him. And he says, who is there uh, such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? Again, I shouldn't be going into the temple, Nehemiah says. I will not go in. On the authority of the written word of God, he says, I'm not disobeying God's word to follow your suggestion. I don't care how spiritual you are, how spiritual you seem or you want me to perceive you are. He says, I'll stand on the written authority of God's word over the persuasiveness of your spiritual essence, trying to seem like that you're sharing something that's so important for me. He says, I will not go in. Verse 12, notice he says, then I perceive that God had not sent him at all, but that he just pronounced this prophecy because he was a hired prophet by his enemies, again, trying to use another tactic to misguide him in his spiritual life. I love that statement, verse 12, he perceived God had not sent him. Folks, sometimes we need to have a little better spiritual perception. We need to be able to perceive sometimes what's of God and what's not of God, to test the spirits, to see if they be of God. Be very careful. Just because somebody acts very caring and they're saying things and they're trying to speak things into your life, be careful. Sometimes you need to perceive. Was what that person said really from God? Was that text I received, that email I got, or that phone call and what that person said to me? It might have been said and couched in very spiritual terms and seeming very well-intended, but sometimes even there we have to perceive. I don't know if that was really from God or not, though. There might have been some other reason. It may have been the enemy subtly using something to try and harm you or, or to get you in a position that's not good or to do something wrong. Notice verse 13, he says, For this reason that guy was hired, Nehemiah says, that I should be afraid and act that way in sin, so that they might have cause for an evil report 
and that he might reproach me. So Nehemiah says, I know the reason behind that. He says, they were just trying to make me afraid so that I would resort to self-preservation. Oh, no. If they're going to kill me, if I don't go in the temple and hide, I might die and be put to death by assassination. And he says, they were just trying to prey upon my fears to make me so panicked that I would actually do something to act in a way that was, he says, sinful there in verse 13. Wow, again, keep in mind, the enemy knows different ways to try and exploit us to get us to sin, and one of the things he'll even use is fear. Sometimes he will do things in such a way to cause us to become fearful, to become so worried about something, to panic, and we're so concerned about our own welfare or doing something for our own self-preservation that we'll actually act in a way that we violate the Word of God. Again, we're so concerned maybe about a situation. Well, if I don't do this or that, or I may, you know, I may lose my job or something. So I guess I better lie just to try and preserve my job or keep my job because we're so fearful we're going to lose our job or something. Or I guess I better do this thing that I was told to do, though I know it's very unethical and it's wrong. It's stealing or it's completely unethical. But if I don't, what if I lose my job? And so fear is pressuring us to basically act in a way whereby we may sin against God and do what's wrong because of fear that's being pressured upon us by the situation that we find ourselves in. Look, be careful. Fear can cause us to sin. Don't let fear let you act in a way that's sinful. Always honor God's word. Have courage. This is where faith comes about. Walk in faith. Walk in obedience to the word of God. Don't let the fear of man become a snare in your life, so you act in a way in sin. He says, and if I would have done that, they would have had cause for an evil report, verse 13, that they might reproach me. So Nehemiah says, they were just trying to discredit my character. That's what they were trying to do. And and again, this is, again, another tactic of how the enemy tries to defeat God's people. If he can discredit our character, uh, he tremendously takes out our legs from under us. If, If the enemy of our soul can discredit the character or reputation of a leader, In many ways, he's rendered that leader very ineffective. If not, he's completely defeated altogether. So Nehemiah says, I had to be careful there because I could have stumbled and acted in a way following his directive, and then I would have sinned and they would have discredited me altogether, and the people wouldn't have listened to me or respected my leadership any longer. So again, what does he do? Verse 14, he prays. My God, he says, remember Tobiah and Sanballat according to their works, and the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who would have made me afraid. It seems there were many who were trying to speak in the name of the Lord or in some spiritual way, and they were basically just false prophets trying to misdirect Nehemiah and the people of God. Verse 15, he says, So the wall was finished, there's what we've been waiting for, on the 25th day of Elo in 52 days. So in less than two months, because this was a work of God, because the people of God embraced what God wanted done, and they came together, and they had a mind to work, and they worked cooperatively, each one was doing his part, they were faithful, they persevered, they didn't let opposition stop them, they kept pressing forward, though there were challenges, they didn't just give up easy, they remained faithful and committed, and they had good, strong leadership. It says the wall was finished in 52 days. Something that had been like that for over a 100 years changed in 52 days. When the power of God is at work through the people of God, it's amazing what can be accomplished through the Lord's people. And you know, this is one of the greatest ways, in a sense, to just stand against the enemy, and that's this, is to stay on task and to finish what God started in your life. You want to poke the enemy in the eye, in a sense? Finish. You want to poke the enemy in the eye? Keep walking with Jesus. Stay faithful to the Lord. You want to poke the enemy in the eye as he's tried to stop and hinder and, 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 and rob you of God's plans and purposes? You stay on task. You remain faithful. You finish that thing that God's told you to do, that God's given you to do. That's one of the greatest ways to just demonstrate your resistance to stay faithful until you finish. Verse 16, and it happened when all our enemies heard of it and all the nations around us saw these things, they were disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived, beautiful statement, they perceived that this work was done by our 
God. So as all the people witnessed what was going on, it happened in such a way where looking on, they said, there is no other explanation than that was a work of God. God did that. Certainly the people participated as the Lord's servants, but they recognized that was something that happened because of a supernatural involvement of God. God had to do that. That was a work of God himself, and therefore God was glorified. God was exalted in the eyes of the people looking on. People perceived that it had been done by God. It was a work of God, and that's what we want, people to see things that are happening in our lives. We want to see the work of God's Spirit working within us, restoring and rebuilding us when we maybe have fallen spiritually, the work of God's Spirit building ourselves up in our most holy faith, causing us to grow as the Lord's people, where people would look at our lives and they would see maybe what we once were when we were a mess before the Lord's Spirit started working in our life and that they would look upon our life after the Holy Spirit does a great work in us, restoring, rebuilding, making us a different person, and they would say, wow, It's so evident that God has worked in his life. It's so evident that, I mean, her life, I remember what she was like. That's a work of God. There's no way they could be who they are now because I know who they once were. And we want people. Jesus said, you know, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Whenever we do any work for God, we want to do it in such a way where at the end of the day, people recognize the reason why that ministry flourished, the reason why that you know church effort was successful, the reason why that local church you know experienced what it did within it as a local congregation is because that was a work of God. It wasn't some great slick ideas of you know Madison Avenue and marketing strategies and all these things we do you know, like trying to build a business and all the bells and but no, it, it was a work of God. It was a work of God. That's what we want to happen. That's what the Spirit of God wants to do, that God may be glorified and those looking on recognize that it was all done by God. Verse 17 says, Also in those days the nobles of Judah and many sent many letters to Tobiah, and the letters of Tobiah came to them. For many in Judah were pledged to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Johanan, had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah, and also they reported his good deeds before me and reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. So what these concluding verses of chapter 6 are referring to here is how Tobiah had kind of found a way to infiltrate the ranks of God's people through marriage. He had found a way through marriage relationship to be able to connect with God's people to earn some degree of uh, kind of reputation among them. And so he was, again, though a very corrupt man, someone who had gained rapport in the eyes of the people, and his corruption was kind of able to be hidden somewhat because he represented himself in such a, a noble way, and he, through an unhealthy marriage relationship, had found a way to infiltrate the ranks of the church, even as an enemy, continuously causing to cause God's work to seek. And you know, one of the ways the enemy will try and infiltrate the ranks of God's people and God's work is even through things like unhealthy marriages that uh, were not of God and maybe should have never happened, but it's just a way that sometimes the enemy will find to creep in the situations where he can cause his destructive efforts to come to pass. Now, just briefly, chapter 7, we're not going to read through it. You'll take notice, if you did or read ahead, that it's a listing of a lot of names, very similar to the same listing we get back in Ezra chapter 2 of the returning exiles. But let me just read the first few verses to make a few comments before we tie up our study. It tells us, chapter 7, verse 1, Then it was when the wall was built... And I had hung the doors when the gatekeepers and singers and Levites had been appointed. So the wall is now constructed. And now uh, Nehemiah realizes that there's a need for further appointment of uh, more workers and leadership. As God's work was expanding, there was a need for appointing more people to serve in different capacities. There were gatekeepers, kind of security and protecting that which came in and went out and made sure that God's work stood safe and stable and it wasn't 
infiltrated by unhealthy influences, singers leading God's people in the worship and praise of the Lord, the Levites, which were the temple workers, if you would, doing ministry in practical ways. And then, of course, leaders as well. Verse 12, he says that I also gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hananiah. Remember, this was the one who came and brought news to Nehemiah there when he was a cupbearer to the king of Jerusalem being in such a difficult condition, which stirred Nehemiah's heart to want to answer this call to go help God's people. So he says, I gave the charge now of Jerusalem. Once the wall was completed, Nehemiah kind of felt his works had come to a place where it was time to turn over the work. He had done what God asked him to do, and he felt, okay, I've served my purpose. And he kind of felt it's time now to turn the work over to another to take the lead. So he says, I gave the charge over to Jerusalem to my brother Hananiah, to Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was, notice, verse 2, a faithful man and feared God more than many. Notice the criteria that Nehemiah cared about as he turned over his role of leadership to someone else. He selected this particular individual because it says he was a faithful man and he feared God more than others. Again, faithfulness, such an important attribute, not only in spiritual service, but in all forms of spiritual leadership and leadership in general. Faithfulness. You know, it's often been said before the greatest ability is dependability. The greatest ability is dependability. You want to be a good leader? Be someone who's faithful. You have great dependability. You're reliable. You carry things through. When you're assigned something, you, you make sure that it gets done. You understand commitment and being dependable. This is so crucial. Jesus, well done, thou good and faithful servant, he's going to say. That's what he's going to commend the Lord's people for, those who did his work. And so Nehemiah says, the reason I picked this guy to take over my role of leadership is he was a faithful man, and he feared God more than most people. That is, he had a great concern of not displeasing God. He cared more about pleasing God than pleasing people. That's what it means. He feared God more than many. He was the type of angel who said, one of my greatest concerns is not just being faithful. I always want to make sure in the midst of my faithfulness that I'm faithful to always make sure that I do what pleases God, not what pleases people. Because if you're pleasing God, that's what matters most. And you're staying away from what displeases God, that's what matters most. And that healthy reverence of God wanting to honor God is a crucial thing. With great attributes of a servant of the Lord and very important attributes for someone who's going to provide leadership. A reverent person, reverent and fearful of doing what's right in the sight of the Lord, and someone who's faithful and dependable, loyal and committed. Verse 3, And I said to them, Don't let the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. He says, While they stand guard, and let them shut and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch and the other in front of his own house. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not Rebuilt. So Nehemiah gives them instruction, don't open the gates first thing in the morning when people may still be vulnerable. If they're not awake yet, wait until the, the time when the sun is risen and it's hot. It's the midday. Everyone is awake. This would keep them safe and more alert to their enemy attacks. In verse 5, we'll conclude with this. It says, And then God put into my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, the people, that they might be registered by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return and found written in it, these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity, who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, carried away, who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his own city. And then verse 7, down through the chapter, he begins to list off those from this genealogy, again, keeping accurate records, making sure that the people were aware of their, you know, kind of their, their condition and their position. And this was an important thing to help them to be able to recognize who was to be among them as God's people and who wasn't. And again, all these details listed out there of the different names, again, remind us how God is a God of great power, but he's a personal God. 
He knows the details. He knows every person's name and every life and every individual matters to him. And God here records and takes note of that. But again, if I can draw your attention to verse 5 as we conclude, Nehemiah says, the reason I did this was because God put it in my heart to do this. Again, God put it in his heart to take this record, to utilize organization, to be very you know, careful and making sure he had accurate records. But he says, I did this because it's something else that God put in my heart. Here's something that we see continually about Nehemiah. He was someone who paid attention to what God put in his heart. And he did those things that God put in his heart. He didn't do the things that were in his mind or on his mind. He didn't do the things that other people maybe always suggested or proposed. He did what God put on his heart. The Bible says God writes his will on the fleshly tablet of our heart. You know, as you seek God, as you pray, as you read God's word, as you walk with the Lord, God is going to put things on your heart at times. It may be following God's call to do something like Nehemiah did, to go back and rebuild and restore the walls of Jerusalem and to help in a situation and to minister in some way. It may be something as simple as God putting it on your heart to record and to jot some things down, uh, maybe to write a letter to someone or email someone or send a text, and as he here gets something on his heart to record this genealogy. But again, God puts things on our heart. What's God putting on your heart? Pay attention when God puts things on your heart, and don't ever think that something is too grandiose. Oh, that seems too big. I feel like God's put on my heart, but it seems too big. If God's in it, have faith and walk in it obediently and watch God do it, no matter how big it is. And if it's something small and seems insignificant, still pay attention to it and do what God puts upon your heart. Let's pray together.